Welcome again to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're brand new, uh, welcome to our church. Glad you guys are joining for uh, one, of our, one of our Sundays here. We are in a sermon series right now in the books of First and Second Samuel. So if you have a Bible or a phone app and want to turn there, uh, please feel free to do that uh, during my brief introduction. We are in chapter 14 today. We've been talking about this period of the Bible, this period of Old Testament history that tells the story of Israel's transition into the era of the kings. So you may or may not be aware Israel as an historical kind of covenanted people with God in Old Testament times uh, had a period where they did not have kings and then they did and these books talk about that kind of overlap. Samuel being one of the chief protagonists is not a king, not one of them, but he is a priestly and leader, leader figure who helps with this transition basically. And um, we've been reading then how Israel has sinfully demanded a king of God on their own timeline, how they then kind of tried to work up a king on their own uh, strength and own volition rather than wait for God to give them a king by his own grace. So that was kind of, for the last couple of weeks, especially a couple weeks ago, we talked about that kind of duality, that importance of seeing the different ways of thinking about kingship and why it was so wrong for Israel to ask for a king when earlier in the story God said, when you do ask for a king, that it's okay to do that, but just kind of do it in this way. It's kind of, kind of, kind of had to iron that out, iron those wrinkles out. That was the big, big reason why it was so wrong, is it, it, it came more from them. It was, uh, it was a working up of a king on their own strength rather than kind of a reception idea. So... Um, so I called Saul, this king that they receive, the, uh, the people's king, and Spence said this last week, the, last week as well, uh, the people's king, uh, a couple weeks ago, to get, this, get at this idea, which will then contrast him with David, who we'll call God's king later on in the story. So we'll go quite get to him today, but just kind of have that in mind as we um, come to it in a couple of weeks. But right now, we're still in the middle of the Saul narratives. Saul is not a total wash by any stretch. God still uses him, um, you know, communicates with him, makes some promises to him. Uh, and in some ways, Saul even typifies Christ to us as well. But remember Samuel's prophecy about him, about Saul. Uh, in part, it was that he will be a king of taking, not giving. Saul will be a king of taking, not giving. So you could say he serves as a counterexample to what true divine kingship will be like in the future. And this is why Bible stories like this exist, by the way, and why they're so important. They're about our king, not just Israel's historical kings of old. They're about our king. If there is a herald with a trumpet and a voice loud enough to cover the earth, and in a way there is because this story and others like it are that herald, it would say to all nations and peoples and inhabitants of the earth in every language, let earth receive her king, King Jesus. And so some of these narratives in the middle of 1 Samuel might seem pretty forgettable at first and just quite frankly odd like today's, which we'll get to. And certainly not something that you'll see depicted in your average abridged kid's Bible, but they're meaningful because they start to shape for us what this new king will be like. And what he won't be like. Uh, and that's a big way the Bible kind of operates, by the way, is it likes to talk about things in terms of what they are, but also at the exact same time, what they're not. 
Uh, it's, a, it's a book of contrasts. It's a book of dualities. It's a book of mountains and peaks and also valleys. It's a, it's a book of ebbs and flows. It's not just one static thing um, treating all of its subject matter in the exact same way and with the exact same weight. Uh, it's, it's more like a dynamic uh, kind of uh, storyline. And so in a microcosm kind of way, we're seeing that here in this book where you have David's and Saul's, and they're not the same. One better reflects what God is like, and the other one doesn't. And, but together they tell the one story of Jesus Christ who will come to fulfill um, all of them, whether by way of similarity or by way of dissimilarity. All right, so um, today we're going to look at actually not um, Saul as much, though a little bit, and we're not going to meet David yet. We're going to talk about Jonathan, who is Saul's son. So a little context here, um, the sermon's called Death by Honey from 1 Samuel 14, 24 to 45. Saul, um, or Jonathan rather, has just got done initiating and leading a victorious battle against the Philistines, but then something strange and kind of out of nowhere happens post-battle that serves as kind of like the fodder for theology. So this is all history, these are all real people, real events, real nations, um, that are intertwined with theology, where we learn about God and ourselves and ultimately salvation by seeing how they depict things in, in this case, um, a narrative uh, in symbolic kind of way. All right, so uh, picking up in verse 24, we'll read this in full to begin. Feel free to follow along on screen. This is an abridged reading here, so probably best to follow on screen, but if you have it open in front of you, totally fine as well. All right, verse 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day before, because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw honey oozing out, yet no one ate any because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard about the oath, so he reached out the end of his staff and dipped it into the honeycomb. He ate some, and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That's why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little bit of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. That day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines, they were exhausted. They took sheep, cattle, and calves and butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. Saul, after commanding them to eat meat the right way without the blood in it, built an altar to the Lord and said, let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. But the priest said, let us inquire of God. So Saul asked God, shall I go up down and pursue the Philistines? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, Come up here, all you are leaders of the army, and let's find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But none of them said a word. Saul then said to the Israelites, You stand over there, and I and Jonathan my son will stand over here. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, Cast a lot between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. 
Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He was brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Okay, so uh, what we're going to do today is, again, talk primarily about Jonathan. We'll meet more of him in this series before this series out, but this is basically kind of the initial uh, doorway of our meeting of him and, uh, and understanding kind of the role he plays in the book, which is actually a pretty big one. He'll befriend David later and kind of play sort of a, uh, kind of a contrary role to his father Saul. You, you see that in today's story uh, as well. So we're, we're getting a good, good kind of taste for the purpose Jonathan has in the biblical narratives. Um, we're going to look at this first part uh, to start, which is Jonathan tasting the honey, not re- really realizing he wasn't supposed to, and then just kind of like wrestling with his father's rule, harsh rule over this, and longing for better days. And then we'll look at this whole lot casting thing at the end as well. Uh, so kind of looking at the first half to begin, then we'll follow with the latter. All right, so First Samuel 14 is... Um, you know, in a few words, it's basically the story of a son breaking from his father over the rules and how he longs for a better way. And, you know, Saul makes what you might call an overly rash and unhelpful law. He, uh, as you just heard, he binds people to it. He binds people to an oath, promising a curse even if they were to eat food in the wake of Jonathan's victory over the Philistines, who are their kind of principal enemy during this time. This is probably from a place of wanting a piece of the action himself, um, uh, for Saul, out of pride, because he wasn't a part of Jonathan's initial victory. But whatever the reason, the rules put in place, don't eat or else. Don't eat anything until basically evening or sundown or else. But Jonathan doesn't hear about it. He's kind of aloof to it, and he eats the honey anyway. Then after he is looped in, he says, this is an important uh, phrase here, My father has made trouble for the country. My father Saul, the king, has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little bit of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Okay, so this is actually a really helpful depiction of a lot of what we've already been talking about in this series and a lot of what you actually see strewn throughout the Old Testament in the narratives of the Bible, even more broadly speaking. But what we've already seen in this series about how Saul is not only the people's king, but he's the king of people's strength. He's the king of people's will. Because to reject God as king is to amplify the self. You, You can't reject God as king and not put yourself up on the throne on some way. Even if, even if you put someone else on the throne, you're kind of saying, it's up to me and it's my decision and, and kind of my prior, prioritizing will to do what I want with the throne, uh, whether I put someone else up there or me. And so and this is what you see in scripture is who's on the throne? Is it God or humanity? And again, this, this story is a microcosm of that being played out again and again and again. And now people are hardwired to take God off the throne and to put themselves up. And so Saul represents this. And and in that, he represents that voice in Scripture that kind of aligns with his command here, or his oath. That that voice in Scripture that says, do, do, do. 
It's what we often call the law in the Bible, how it bears its weight down upon the soldiers and Jonathan like it does for us. It says here, the oath binds. This oath that Saul is giving, it actually handcuffs people. It limits them. It traps them. It wraps them in a, a rope that's too tight and it suffocates them. The oath is not a liberating thing. The oath is a binding thing, it says. But then Jonathan represents another better way. This is something you see scripture do a lot. We've already seen this in this series a number of times, how it portrays the Bible's a story of two different ways or two covenants. And Jonathan represents the other way, the way of the New Testament, you could say. How God's grace, like the honey in this story, will, quote, brighten our eyes and enliven and make us glad because salvation will come apart from our works. It will come apart from our promises and apart from our obedience. And so when we ask the question, like, how is this part of the greater mosaic of Scripture? How is it looking forward? Um, Which the Bible, again, is very keen to do this, and we've been clear uh, to do it as well, um, preaching through this, and we'll continue to. It's always the question you should ask when you're in the Old Testament. How is it looking forward? But to that question, in terms of how forward-looking this is, it reminds me of a couple of things. Um, One how Jesus himself broke from the law in the gospel accounts, how he showed that his arrival was coming apart from those things and how he was coming to make changes, how he's associated more with resting than working, much to the chagrin of the the proud religious elite of the day, and more with feasting than fasting. In fact, at one point in the gospels, the Pharisees, who are, are one of these religious elite groups in the first century that clash a lot with Jesus. They are fasting from food for religious reasons, but Jesus and his disciples are not fasting from food. And the crowds are noticing this discrepancy. They're seeing the differences of how they're working out their spirituality, you could say, or something like that. And they ask Jesus about it. How can it be that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, this other group, they're fasting from food, but Jesus, who is, we think might be the guy, the Messiah, the chosen one, is not, or at least we're understanding him to be this kind of principal rabbi at this time. Why is he not fasting? And to that, uh, Jesus responds, how can you fast when the bridegroom is with you? Which is to say, who fasts at a wedding? Who acts sad at a party? You know, who goes to a reception at a wedding and, and says, oh no, you know, I'm, I can't, I'm, I'm unwilling to eat because this is appropriate to sort of, you know, have a downtrodden face and to not dance and, and not eat. Like, that's not normal, right? And so Jesus is saying, it's like I'm the bridegroom and I'm here and I'm coming to fulfill all things and to bring about a great salvation for the world. Of course we're going to eat. Why is this even a question? And it actually sounds a lot like what's going on with Jonathan and how he's referencing his father, Saul. Uh, Jonathan's saying, why is my father saying don't eat right after we won a great victory against the Philistines? And we have relief from our oppressors, and we have peace, and we have rest and deliverance. Isn't this the most appropriate time to throw a party and and to eat? Uh, my, My father has not done something good. He has brought trouble upon the nation, not Uh, not liberation, he's acting the wrong way. And so I'm adding words here, but this is like in the white space, this is what he's he's getting at. Basically, it's like Debbie Downer. John's like, my my dad's a Debbie Downer, that's what he's saying. But, But again, with Jesus, 
The salvation he was coming to bring us, this is what this story is looking ahead to, the, the story that he was coming to bring us, the salvation he was coming to bring us, was a giving type, not a taking type. So the king he was coming to be was a giving type of king, uh, a let's eat type of king, not an abstaining, not, not a pull away food from us type king or a taking uh, type, type king. And again, this contrasts then, not just Jonathan with Saul, it contrasts Jesus with Saul. And the old covenant spirituality, you could call it, that was wrapped around perfect rule obedience in order to obtain blessing from God and to maintain it. Um, Jonathan's breaking from that ever so slightly to point ahead to how Jesus will make a full wholesale break uh, from it. And I, you, you could put David in between there as well, so just... Tuck that away in your mind for future weeks here, because David's going to do this as well um, uh, in upcoming sermons. Okay, also reminds me of Acts 15. Uh, the early Christians, so when, when they're discussing this matter of how the Old Testament law relates to the Christian, um, they say in a lot of things, but in part this. This is kind of their summative response. This is council meets, and they have to make a decision, like, What's changed here with Jesus? How much is he abrogated from the Old Testament? Um, what exactly does it mean that he's brought newness? And, and what does it mean that we're not under the law anymore, but under his grace alone? And they had to kind of understand this because Gentiles, non-Jews, were coming to faith who knew very little of Jewish law. And so they were trying to kind of wrap their minds around this. Well, one of the summative things they say is this from Acts 15. These are Jewish Christians, by the way. We believe we should not trouble, same word that um, Jonathan used about Saul, trouble. We believe we should not trouble those Gentiles or non-Jews who are turning to God by putting on their necks a yoke that neither we nor ancestors were able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Okay, so they're saying the law brought trouble. The commandments brought trouble, not liberation. Um, and so they're saying, why would we add, add on around the neck of these new Christian converts, m many of whom are not Jewish, um, and increasingly so? Why would we add on things that we could never keep ourselves or never bear? Why would we crush people with what crushed us? Of course Jesus is replacing these things. He said as much, but now like to formalize it and put it into an actual letter, which they sent off to these predominantly Gentile areas that were, be, that were converting to Christianity, they wrote this down and said, There's, there is nothing, we're not adding anything except believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of, of your sins. And so this is a really helpful connection with both New Testament theology then, but also our own experience as believers. So in other words, like Saul troubled Israel by tacking on oaths and rules and conditional curses, to the victory that Jonathan won, so do we often seek to add on to the victory that Christ won for us. And we do it with, uh, with a, um, a now you must do this or else type condition, or this is the, the one right way to live as a Christian, and if we don't, it brings into great question whether or not we're saved, uh, or something like that. Even if it's well-intentioned or draped with Bible verses on them, um, this, is, this is a hardwired way to think for fallen people that are always seeking to self-justify and to add too much of us to the equation of salvation. But this is precisely what the early Christians in Acts 15 
we're trying to prevent. And I know some of you, uh, maybe some of you in the room uh, today, have gone through um, church hurt theologically in this area where so much has been expected of you or demanded of you as a Christian, much more than Christ does. Uh, Or maybe the source of those thoughts is our own hearts. They're self-imposed or our own misreadings of scripture. Or maybe it's the whisper of the devil himself. Um, Whatever the source, uh, it's common, extremely common. And um, yes, there are things we're called to as Christians, to live out of the love we've been shown. We talk about gladly abstaining from sins that formerly bound us. We talk about uh, our impulse to a dead and dying world uh, with evangelism, all that and more. But with that said, right next to that, a big part of the Christian life is, like Jonathan, yearning for the better days of grace-based, gospel-centered doctrine and and believing that Jesus' work for us really is sufficient. And that true love doesn't demand of the person being loved, but it moves towards constantly, every day, every moment. And that's what God is like to us. True love doesn't demand something back. It constantly gives in spite of. And so to to quote Jonathan then again and to apply that more in a broad brush way to all of this, how much better would it be if we lived as though that was true? How much better would our lives be, our reading of scripture? How much better would life in community with other Christians? How much lightness and liveliness to our eyes when we ate the honey of that would come rather than living under the oppressive uh, commands and laws that could never be kept by Israel or the world watching. Um, Instead, to be connected to God is simply to eat of the honey that drips from the blood of the body of Christ from the cross. Uh, full stop. That is it. And so this yearning that Jonathan has, I actually think, I was thinking this week too, he reminds me, if you read Hebrews 11 before, he reminds me of this, um, if you haven't, it's this list of Old Testament um, characters, essentially, that had faith. And they looked ahead to Jesus with that faith in many and many various ways. Jonathan's not listed in that list, but I think he is kind of in the white space, because this, what you're reading here, Jonathan's saying, how much better would it have been if we could eat honey? Longing for a type of spirituality, not under the oppressive rule um, of of perfect obedience, but simply feasting and, and wanting joy and liberation and victory from God, that he works for us, not us for him. That is a yearning for Christ ahead of time. Like, he is yearning as a human being like us for, uh, for, those, for those better days. Now, to the question then of how that really takes shape, and I've kind of already been alluding to it, um, so this, this is going to come out of nowhere, but um, to the question though of how this really takes shape, we keep reading in the story. And so we start with this kind of like contrast between Old and New tes- uh, Testament and yearning for the New, but in terms of what the New Testament actually is and how it's like enacted, and ultimately comes to us. For that, we, we, keep, we keep reading. And we see this theme, uh, which is super interesting, of when the lot falls on the king's son. And so, uh, to remind you what happened in the story, what happens next is Saul sets out to fight the Philistines himself, so like a second battle. But the priest says, let's ask God first. So Saul does. But God doesn't answer 
So Saul figures someone must have sinned for God to be silent, which is really interesting. So kind of tuck that away to you. We'll come back to that. But he's like, well, someone must have sinned. God's not talking. Okay. So he casts lots or basically rolls. This is an Old Testament way of like rolling dice as an alternative physical expression of determining God's will. And at first, the lot falls on Saul and Jonathan versus the people. So the people are cleared. They're exonerated. Then he says, cast it one more time between me and my son Jonathan. And then the lot falls on Jonathan. So Saul is cleared. To which Jonathan confesses, yes, I ate the honey. The king bound us with an oath, so I must die. All right. My old pastor always said, clear as mud. I always think about that with stories like this. Clear as mud, right? Like, don't even have to preach it. Um, you kind of do have to preach it. So, um, but interesting, first of all, isn't it? I mean, two things stick out to me. Two really interesting things um, uh, among the many. And that is, first, that the lot falls this way at all over something so arbitrary. Um, we'll come back to that in a minute here as well. But also interesting that Jonathan doesn't say, I didn't know about the oath. I'm innocent. Like, he could have, like, defended himself, right? But he doesn't. He just says, yes, I deserve to, not just, like, to be punished, but actually to die for dipping a staff into a little bit of honey. Like, it's supposed to, like, make us kind of pause and say, what is going on? Uh, and why is Jonathan just absorbing this and taking this without, without a fight? And so in one sense, he was innocent. He didn't know about the rule, but that's the point. He puts himself under the brunt and the curse of his father's command anyway. And this is uh, what the first whisper uh, is of what Jonathan's spiritual successor, I'll call him, uh, Jesus Christ, will come to be like. Uh, and that is that though innocent, Jesus places himself under the brunt of the law of sin and death, to pull from some language in Galatians 4. He is born under the law to redeem those who are under the oppressive weight uh, of the crushing demands of you must be perfect or you will never see God's face. And so the idea here is that it can crush him instead of us. Jonathan, in his strange, non-defensive, quiet actions, points ahead to his ultimate spiritual successor, Jesus Christ, and how he would even be more of this for us when he would die in our place and be crushed by the law so we wouldn't be. So when Jesus does this at his trial, and when he dies for us on the cross, this is the doorway into the new era that Jonathan longed for. It's an era of honey, not hunger. When an innocent sufferer would take the place of sinners in love for them. In fact, did you notice the um, lingering injustice in this story as it pertained to the other people who sinned? The injustice that works for our favor? Um, like the question I have when reading this is, well, what about the other Israelites that were breaking the law more clearly by eating the blood of the lambs they slaughtered for, for lunch? So there's that little mini story. Did you catch that from earlier? Where like the whole honey thing happens, but then it says, and then they were, then they were actually famished because once Saul's weird oath thing expired and they could eat again, they quickly slaughtered lambs and ate because they were so hungry, but they did it the wrong way. So if you 
weren't aware, there's a law in the Old Testament that says that you can't eat the blood of the animal um, with, with its lifeblood still in it. You can't eat the blood. And so they're, they're preparing and eating it the wrong way and breaking God's commandments uh, in, in doing it. And so you, you kind of read that happens quickly, and then you keep reading about Jonathan, and you're like, well, what about them? What about these lawbreakers? Why aren't they highlighted? Why is Jonathan's sin being highlighted, but not theirs? And if we're talking about casting lots and God working through lots to, like, expose sin and say guilty or innocent or guilty or exonerated, why in the world aren't they highlighted? It's, it's this glaring omission. Again, why did the lot fall on Jonathan and not the others, especially considering the lot was an expression of God's will? That is, we must ask and answer that question. The story begs it, begs it. Again, by way of silence and omission and injustice and unfairness, unfairness. But see, that's exactly the point. The gospel, when we come to terms of the gospel, we have to come to terms with unfairness. And why isn't this happening to me when it should be? Why is this happening to someone else but not this person? These are the kind of the questions that you see in the biblical stories. And the answer then to all these questions is because all of this would later constitute the kingdom of the true and better Jonathan, Jesus Christ, the one who would actually die, not just almost die like Jonathan or figuratively die like Jonathan, but actually die, and who would have the lot of punishment cast against him, who the Lord would make it his will to crush so that the lot of exoneration and passing over could be cast for us. If you were to use Psalm, or sorry, 1 Samuel 14 in New Testament language, or verse 41, it would say, The lot fell on Jesus, and the people were cleared. The lot fell on Jesus, not on you. Though we were the, we were the sinner, the lot fell on the Son of God. That's the gospel. We should have died, but we didn't. And Jonathan's story is this glimpse, it's a signpost, it's a, a forward-facing echo. It's like echoing forward into history to say a day is coming when this will happen again on a much greater level, and not just, in, you know, just for a couple of people to impact their lives or this particular nation or family even, but for the world. And it will happen through this man, the, the one that the stories of Jonathan exist for. Jonathan would not exist if Jesus Christ didn't. These are shadows of him. There's no meaning in these stories apart from Christ crucified, in other words, as the scriptures say. They're, they don't have some kind of other moral uh, impact or, or lesson attached to them, ultimately. They're about him and his love for, for you and me. Now, this last angle on this, which is interesting, um, in one sense that is the final word, but in another sense it's not. I, I um, like to end this story by looking at the people as well, and how they defend Jonathan, and how that helps us feel the scandal of Christianity. Um, so if you remember at the very end, it says, the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He was brought out this great deliverance in Israel? Never. And they advocate for him, and they kind of pull him off 
the gallows, you know, essentially, so to, uh, so to speak. So they save him. Now, in one sense, there's a positive dimension to that. You could look at the, these advocates and say, they kind of remind us of Christ as well in how he advocates for us. Uh, but in another sense, it's not that simple. Uh, I, I like to look at this more from the negative side and to say that the other men here are still seeing things foggily when they advocate for Jonathan. Their actions don't maybe best represent uh, the gospel, especially when kind of wedded with what happens to Jonathan here. Um, they're thinking in a human way, in other words, though very understandable. When they say, should he die? He's the one who rescued us. What's super understandable? What's how we would think, right? Is He doesn't deserve that. We should let him live because he's done something, something good uh, for us. Well, if this story was put in any other religious book, that would actually be the final word. The final word would be, our eventual destiny, our life and death, our salvation or damnation is determined by what we do. Should he, should he die? Should he live? Well, what has he done? Has he helped us? Has he saved us? Has he done good? Has he done bad? That's basically like th this version of that story in any other holy book for all of history, that would be the final word. But that's not Christianity. The final word of Christianity is Jesus died, even though he shouldn't have. And through his death, he rescues us so that we're saved not by should I die or not based on what I've done, but by the desire of another lover to stand in the gap on our behalf who silently bore the silence of God on the cross for us and who didn't just say like Saul, God, why have you not answered me? But he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we might be spared in his stead. See, that's the great scandal of Christianity. You stood right next to Jesus. Lots were cast to see which of you should die. And the lot, by God's loving design, fell on Jesus and not you. And so there's about a thousand reasons why it, you know, I would say it's so important to see that this story is more about Jesus than us. But right towards the top of that list, I would put, so that we would never have to fear God not speaking to us whenever we sin again. And see, if you read these stories from a perspective of this is, um, this is, th this is indicative of Christian spirituality, then it's going to be hard to read this, the part where Saul says, well, someone sinned and now God's silent and not apply that to your situation. And say, well, is God going to be silent to me or pull back from me when I sin? Is, is, this, is it that kind of like, you know, tit for tat sort of thing? Like you do this and I, I, this is what comes out the vending machine? When I put the quarter in, this is what comes out or, or vice versa? And it's not, that's not how it works. In one sense, you could say that's an Old Covenant way of thinking. Like, when people sinned in the Old Testament, it affected their relationship with God. It drove a wedge. Um, God was driven away, and people were driven away. But in the New Testament, sin doesn't affect your relationship with God anymore. Sin doesn't drive a wedge between you and God anymore. And so, when we read these stories, we shouldn't be transposing them onto the Christian experience and saying, if I sin, God will be silent. Instead, we should say, Jesus took on the silence of God on the cross for you and me. There's a reason why God didn't speak, why God, Jesus says, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. 
He's bearing the dark curse of this story, you guys, for you and I, for you and me. He's bearing the silence of God, so you, you never have to worry about that. Like, he took it. He bore the brunt. He faced the silence. And, you know, uh, this Sunday being the first Sunday of Advent, um, just thinking, like, the, the angels that first Christmas season 2,000 years ago announced Jesus' birth with the message of do not fear. It's one of the big things Jesus says as well. It's one of the biggest consolations the angels and God and his son have for us. is don't be afraid anymore. So the stories of the Old Testament that can sometimes breed fear or doubt or questions or too much trust in ourselves are fading away and are being passed up by a better way. The one who doesn't demand you make or keep promises, but the one who makes promises to you, who swears by himself to save you and to never leave you or forsake you forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Uh, God, tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament, uh, full of hope and um, full of, well, in some sense, darkness and light. We thank you for the contrast. We thank you for the dynamicism. We thank you for showing us what you're like and also what you're not like so we can, we can understand you from both those, both those angles. Um, but Jesus, thank you that you are the one who is the harbinger of the better way. Jonathan looked ahead to this like so many of the faithful Israelites did and, and non-Israelites in the Old Testament. They looked ahead by faith to the better days. Well, we have clarity. Now we know what those better days are. It's an era of honey and dancing and feasting. It's not an era of fasting. It's not an era anymore of we must do, 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 or don't, 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 or abstain, 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 or obey, obey, obey. But instead, we're in a covenant now where God takes, you God, take all of the high expectations on yourself. And you don't add anything on to the simple message of believe in Jesus to be saved. Um, you alone stand in the gap. It's not you and something else. It's just you. And, um, but thank you, Jesus, for taking the lot, for, for, bear, for being the one who unjustly went to, the, went to the cross for us. And the lot was cast against you so we could be exonerated and cleared. That's the gospel. That's exactly what it is. And, and these stories here are meant to forecast the king who would come to make it a reality. Praise your name for that. In Jesus' name, amen.